1: Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, we're talking about virtual selling, a hot topic many are discussing and debating as organizations continue to reevaluate travel budget, cost of sales, changing desire of buyers, who wants to be face-to-face, who doesn't. To help us with this topic, we have Sean Campbell, CEO of Cascade Insights, a B2B market research firm specifically focused on technology companies. Sean, thank you very much for taking time to be on the show today.
0: No, thanks for having me on.
1: So before we jump in, uh, we like to start with kind of an odd question, uh, give our audience a little bit more insight into you as an individual. And so if you look back over your career, can you select or find a defining moment that maybe changed the trajectory of your career or gave you some insights and share that with the audience and tell us kind of what that event was and what you learned from it?
0: Yeah, that's pretty easy, and I imagine that's probably – the same thing is going to be true for anybody else who started a business. It's, it's starting a business. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's selling, selling is hard no matter where you're in, whether you're selling for somebody else's business or it's for your own. But like I told somebody on a different show the other day, I said, you know, the thing you should never give away when you're growing from like one to 10 employees is selling. Um, and so many times a new person who starts a business, the first thing they want to give away is selling if they're one of these guys that's kind of a doer. Who likes doing the job of the business? And I, I like doing the job of my business too. But um, you have to hold on to that for a while. So for me, it was starting a business. Um, first one I started was in 2000. I grew and sold that business and started Cascade in 2006. And uh, the story from that standpoint was about two years into that business, we had been doing, you know, our own selling uh, personally. It was me and two other business partners, and we had good relationships with the clients that we had and things like that. But we decided that we wanted to grow our relationship with Microsoft. And for about a six to nine month window, we tried some contract sales resources and it just didn't work. And that's not to say that they they don't work always, but in this case, it was clear to me that this individual just really did not know how to sell us, no matter how much they tried. And they didn't really even want to learn Microsoft to the degree they needed to. And this is when Microsoft was cool. Uh, (laughs) Microsoft is somewhat cool again, somewhat cool, I might add. But there was a point where they were cool. They were like the Google of 2002. And no one believes me when I say that. But like, if you went there in 1999, which is my first trip there, uh, to do any kind of work for them, they they looked kind of like a Google if you transported them back to 1999, you know. Um, And so at the end of the day, the reason I bring up the story is I looked at this individual who was doing the selling. I looked at my business partners and I said, I think I could sell Microsoft. (laughs) My business partners looked at me. I looked at them, my dad had been in sales for his whole life, I thought I had some of the genome, you know, and I thought, I could do this. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, to some degree, right? I mean, this is enterprise account selling on a massive scale. And so, uh, we did really good at it. I mean, good enough to grow the first business to eventually have enough revenue in it to sell it. But there was a ton of stuff I learned, and that was definitely kind of a defining moment, just kind of stepping up and volunteering to take on Microsoft.
1: There are a lot of people out there that when you ask them, you know, how'd you get into sales? I very rarely hear, well, when I was young playing with my fire trucks, I told myself I wanted to be in enterprise sales. There always seems to be a securitist route <laughs> in, into it, right? And so there are those that find it, you know, quite fascinating. Like, like myself, I started my career in, in on the dark side. Well, it depends on your perspective, but I started in marketing and went into sales because I liked the problem solving aspects of it. But I was not that kid, you know, playing with the fire trucks and who oh, I can't wait to do enterprise sales, right? So it's always it's always interesting to hear how people, um, you know, kind of make their ways into that and, and the insights that they gain as they do that. So let's talk a little bit about Cascade Insights. Help us understand a little bit more about them and, and your role there.
0: Yeah, so Cascade Insights is a firm that does market research and competitive intelligence services for technology companies, but only B2B-focused technology companies. Um, I tell folks all the time, we have a very narrow front door. I sometimes refer to it as the kitty door. It's that small <laughs> that essentially that, that you can fit in. And if you can fit through that door and we regularly turn down stuff, it's one of the more surprising things about professional services. And, and I hate to say this, but I think anybody listening knows it's true that a lot of professional services, especially if they're kind of high-end consulting, they kind of do whatever walks in the door, right? Regardless of what the website says. And we really mean it. We turn down the other stuff that knocks on the door. Our clients work in different industries, but our clients are only B2B-focused technology companies. And so, for them, we do, you know, market research services and competitive intel work. Uh, my role is I'm the CEO, and I'm an equal co-founder co-owner with a guy named Scott Swigert, who's the CTO and president. And basically, day to day, I focus on motivating and educating. Um, I think you know, I don't know what it's like to be a CEO of even a hundred person company. I mean, in terms of, we have clients that are pretty large, but you know, I've never been a CEO of a bigger company than 20, 25 people. And at the end of the day, I, I think that's what a lot of CEOs find themselves doing, you know, outside of all the other stuff that they focus on, number oriented, etc., It's a lot of motivating and educating. And uh, from a day-to-day standpoint, I manage the relationship with key accounts. I lead sales and our marketing efforts, and I oversee a lot of the Operational stuff like finance and legal and that's, that's kind of the day to day and week
1: to week. So, so, I've got to ask. I know it wasn't on the list of questions I provided, but it just kind of dawned on me. I, I did professional services for over a decade. And one of the things that I saw a lot of firms struggle with was that uh, focus, right? So, you guys are, if you look at the website and just to listen to you talk, you guys are very focused on a very specific set of customers. And even, it sounds like turning down business that doesn't fit into that. How did you, I'm just curious for my own education, how did you come to that realization that that was, you know, the secret to your success moving forward? that level of focus
0: well it's interesting it was a little bit of an up and down thing um, the first business was so hyper focused on a particular client need that a lot of our business came from Microsoft and Intel and we had a smattering of other work uh, and we all know that when you open up a small business if you look at their P and l they'll say like yeah we have key accounts and then you realize they have two key accounts that are like 60% of the revenue right that's real typical for small businesses right? And so, and and if you if you don't believe that and you're listening, just open up QuickBooks for most small businesses when they're starting, and they typically have like a couple major accounts. And so, uh, regardless of what the owner's telling you, right? And so, at, at the end of the day, we were very focused in the first business, and we're like, we're never doing that again. That was way too stressful to be like so hyper focused on a couple accounts. Um, and so we got really broad when we started Cascade in the very very beginning, first year or two, and I had traveled the world literally like the. You went all these kinds of different places. We had accounts in different industries. And we realized that what was happening is we were just going to be commoditized. Because at the end of the day, right, unless you have some incredible, almost patentable way of doing what you're doing in services, mind you, like this this incredibly just boxed in way of doing it, and you've written seven books on it or whatever, <laughs> it's really hard to differentiate. If you're, if you're going to hit every industry, right? Because eventually the clients start to sniff out the idea that you're not really focused. You're just following a buck. And so we looked at it and said, look, let's go back to what we know we're awesome at. We are awesome at dealing with large technology companies and down to the mid-market. And we really get tech and we really get B2B. And And let's see how much we can grow if we just put a moat around that and say we're never leaving that castle. And again, you know, we have a client that's in life sciences, but that's a B2B SaaS play that's in life sciences, right? Uh, The line I draw is like, sure, our client might be in life sciences, but we're not going to go work for Merck and ask them what doctors think, (laughs) right? Because that's a pure just sitting over in pharma kind of thing. Um, And it creates some problems, to be honest. I mean, you know, are we going to be 300 people with this focus? No. Um, It's probably too narrow, but I don't want to be 300 people. I don't have plans for world domination. And I think... As long as you know who you are, then it has a lot of benefits when you're in competitive scenarios. Because frankly, uh, somebody's looking at you and three other guys, and the other three guys say they work in all industries and blah, 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 right? And we've all seen how that pitch goes, right? Like, you see, like I have lots of experience across lots of industries, and hence I can generalize. I worked for a gold mine before I worked for you. And we go in and we say, we've only worked with your competitors and you. Or people like you that aren't even your competitor. Now you know which proposal is going to float to the top, and if you do your homework on all the rest of it you 're in a much better position to win and so for us that's been a really good um, strong thing and the final thing is you just get smarter about the space and that's that's a lot of fun because over yeah. time you just learn a lot more about a certain set of problems
1: well and it's i mean it's great to see you know you guys doing that and, and doing it with purpose because I, like i said I've, I saw a lot of services companies that struggled um, you know, with that you know commoditization because they're like, "Oh no, no, we do it all, well, nah, all right, not really <laughs> you're not, not as good as you think you are at it um so I, pre- I appreciate that insight, but we we're here today to talk about virtual selling, so uh it is definitely a hot topic. it's I was just having drinks with uh, another coworker, and it came up uh, last week. But what I'd like to do is start with, can you give our audience a definition or context around the phrase What do you mean when we when we say virtual selling?"
0: Yeah, I would say the shortest definition is how to get a PO without being there. Uh, (laughs) There's a longer definition, but that's the shorter definition. Uh, The longer definition is probably more like this, you know, running a sales process where you can take many months to do it. You've got phone calls, proposal presentations, and even the contracting process. And and all of that, or at least 95% of that. And we can talk about that like the times when it needs to be 95% versus 100% is done virtually. And that's to me is virtual selling where the whole thing from the moment they said hi and you said hi to the moment you have a PO and and potentially even all the delivery of the the workout is just done virtually.
1: And, and so that's a, it's an interesting uh, kind of change. I've been uh, not not to give away my age, but I mean I, I remember Microsoft in 1999, uh, and I've been doing this for a while. I remember when I first started in sales, it was all about getting in front of your customers face to face. And and so now you're hearing about everybody talking about how there's a change, right? People don't necessarily. It, it seems more like it's. Uh, you know, you're know, you really interrupting them or taking away too much time if you show up face-to-face. You have to be very strategic about when to do that. So uh, you, you, know, you kind of mentioned when it should be 95 versus 100, 100%. How do you differentiate, You know, okay, we've done 95%, this one needs an in-face. Like, where's your, where's your line for that?
0: Well, there's actually two things to say about what you commented on. One, you're right. Uh, back in the day, it was almost impossible to get a PO unless you showed up, if not once, um, every time, right? I mean, you sold an enterprise account. You basically, we're talking about 1999, 2002, 2005, something like that. But you lived at the hotel next to campus, oh, basically. Yeah. I mean, they knew your name, they knew your preferences, they knew everything. And that was the only way to really navigate that account. It was the only way to get referrals. It was the only way to get a uh, mindshare in a meeting. And it was the only way to really get a PO. And POs would even get stuck until you showed up it'd be like, yeah, we'll reward it to you, you know, but we need a meeting with you first. (laughs) And what I've noticed is you could almost graph in my own career. I I don't have this graph, otherwise I'd share it, but I I know it, I know it'd be true. The size of the PO that I can generate without ever showing up just gets larger and larger every year. And that's not like an ego thing. I don't mean like, you know, Hey, I can build big, big POs. It's more just, it's the change in buyer behavior. They accept you not being there. And the time where that extra 5% comes in um, is really almost dependent a little bit on the client. But I think the risk in it is if you're used to traveling. And I went through this actually uh, maybe five, six years ago, where I realized I was traveling to clients who probably didn't really need to see me to open the PO. And I had to kind of unwire myself, right? I'm like, there's less people in this lobby than there was five years ago. And it's even harder to show up as a vendor than it was five years ago. You know, um, my wife has a line I use all the time, by the way, because she's been involved in the business over the years, um, doing like accounting and finance and payroll. And she always says, well, well, you know, Sean, you're never going to see a welcome vendor sign in the lobby, right? And she's, <laughs> she's right about that. But, but, but there's less people in that lobby than there was in years past. And I had to kind of recognize I was even holding on to an old school method. Now I'm talking about like 2010, 2009, whatever. And I needed to change, but there's certainly still some times where that one flight, but I'm only talking about one flight, not like living on the hotel next to campus. Right. Kind of moves the deal out of the pocket it's in. And I almost guarantee the person on the other side of the table, a little bit to age here, because I'm 47 is about my age or older. Now I don't believe in, in judging entirely based on age, but I do believe in paying attention to what I see. Right. And I know that if I'm selling to a younger buyer, they, they absolutely don't want me to show up in the building. And they're happy to kind of let me do it. You know, the difference between selling to a 30-year-old uh, VP of marketing and a 60-year-old VP of marketing, when it comes to how much on-site time you need, is pretty stark. Right. Um, so there's a cer- there's a certain issue there, but but at the end of the day, uh, it's it really just comes down to to maybe one one meeting that gooses it forward. And I would say that for mid markets, that's almost non-existent.
1: Yeah, uh, it's, the it's one an challenges. interesting shift. It's an interesting shift. And it, you talk about that decompression, right? Like, cause I lived, I mean, the man, one of the big deals I closed, I was bouncing back and forth between the East and the West Coast every week, going to site, you know, on site in the West Coast, go to headquarters on the East Coast. And it's just like you said, they expected, they almost expected you to be there. And now I, I'm to th- I don't know if I've closed anything in the last 18 months that's required me to show up. And we're talking we're not talking, you know, multi-million dollar deals, but we're we're not talking small ones either. There's this level of, you know, oh hey, I finally meet you when I show up to perform some of the services for the first time. I shake your hand for the first time. And the hardest thing for me was when I went to the airport and didn't have status anymore. <laughs> that was <laughs> no, the that. That way I, I was up call. I was MVP. Yeah.
0: I was MVP gold for a long time. And, you know, flying isn't that painful when you're that level of status. And then right. all of a sudden you're like, okay, now I really remember now why people hate <laughs> flying and hate <laughs> hotels and car rental. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, yeah. But, but to your point, it's really gotten less and less and less. And I, and I honestly think there's a, a generation of sellers and I was in it where you're very tempted to keep buying plane tickets instead of building a toolbox and a set of activities and routines that really allow you to be successful with virtual selling.
1: And so what, so, okay. So that's kind of a one perspective on what virtual selling is. What is virtual selling? Not
0: Um, virtual selling is, is not doing it while you're in a drive through. Uh, That's probably the best way I could describe it. I think there's a lot of people that think virtual selling is easy Or it's, I can be a little lackadaisical about the approach, or I can have a really cruddy Bluetooth headset and still get the job done. (laughs) I mean, there are certain things that that almost become amplified is what I'm trying to say, right? You know, if you were never really good at picking up on nonverbal audio cues, you better get good at it now. Because that three seconds of silence in the meeting when you can't see everybody, and and I know there's video calling, and we can talk about the pros and cons of that too. But, but the reality is, you have to become this incredible listener and questioner that really exceeds what you would have to do in person. Because in person, you have all this other cues that you get to deal with, right? Um, and so I think I think a lot of it is it's it's not it's not setting yourself up for success, right? In that standpoint, and people will kind of start doing virtual selling and they say Does it doesn't work. And I think it's because they're actually using kind of the old process applied to this new approach, and then it ends up not working really well for them.
1: It requires a different level of focus, in my experience. Like, like you have to really have done your homework. You have to be really focused on what's going on. No distractions. Like, if you're on the call, you're on the call, not reading an email or Dealing with Slack or going through the drive-through or or walking to the fridge, as you know, we were talking about earlier. I th- I think it requires at least from those that I've seen and, and the times that I do it, it is uh it is a different level of focus uh, and and being present than I would have seen in more face-to-face situations.
0: Right No, exactly, and there, and there's some trade-offs for sure. I mean, you know, if you're face-to-face and you know, Ken has his buddy you know, Stacy, who's down the hall that he wants to connect you with for a future project. That's a little faster when it's in person, because he might just walk you down to Stacy's office. But the reality is your sales process wasn't going to end there anyway. So if they introduce you <laughs> over email and have a phone call, you, you know, you, you, you still got to do the rest of it regardless. And I think there's um, there's definitely, like a, like you said, there's a level of focus you have to have. And there's even some advantages, frankly. I mean, I remember with a lot of in-person visits, Where you know you meet somebody. Let's use the Microsoft example again, right? You know, you're talking to somebody. They're on a new product team. There's a new product they launched. I mean, it launched yesterday. This isn't like a prep issue. You know, you're being introduced to them. Now, if you're in person, you can't pull up the website while you're right in front of them, right? You can't you can't Google reviews of the product. And and of course, to your point about being focused, you have to know how good of a multitasker you are. (laughs) Can you listen and do this stuff at the same time? But if you can. What a huge advantage. And the same thing with taking notes, right? We know, Everybody who's done sales knows you can't be this kind of typing machine while you're in the meeting, right, where you're just taking really, really great typed notes or written notes, if that's the way you want to go about it, because you got to make eye contact. you got to, like, be connected with the person kind of, you know, non-verbally and physically and stuff like that. If you're on the phone, you could take some pretty awesome notes, right, because you're just right there, you know, talking to them over the phone. Now, if it's video, you got to stare into the camera a little bit more, but even there, I think your ability to kind of have them say something and you even in line with the conversation, look stuff up is great. And I've used that even from uh, selling us in the sense of, you know, I can very quickly say, go check out our site while we're on the phone. And that always felt a little more salesy if I was in the room, right? right? Hey, look at my screen here. Let's look at this. Or can you go to your computer and check out this you know, it's a little less of uh kind of in their face, I guess, and and it's a little easier to do if you're just on the phone. So I think there's a lot of advantages, but you have to structure the call in your time the right way.
1: And so, when you look at you know kind of uh, virtual selling, I mean, it's not it's not new. I mean, it's getting more prevalent, I believe. But if you look at it, kind of when it started, say five seven years ago, um, how have you seen virtual selling change over the last you know five seven years since since we were given the tools, whether they were good or not at the point is a different discussion. But uh, since we started to get the tools like GoToMeeting and and video conferencing and stuff, how have you seen virtual selling evolve?
0: Well, one thing I mentioned earlier, the clients accept it now. Um, it reminds me eerily of something that happened with our first business where we didn't have an office. We had a DSL line, just to show you how long ago that was. <laughs> and we um, and that was considered fast. And we had an exchange server in one of the owner's basements, literally. Remember this is three guys, right? And so uh, and it worked. And I remember vividly going into meetings with people at a Microsoft, at an Intel, etc. And they'd say, So where's your office? I'd say, we don't have one. And initially there was this like, oh, you're not real. right? Right? It's like the same thing your relatives do. Until you have employees, you don't really have a business, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and so it's that whole that whole thing. Yep. And you're like, no, wait a minute. No. They, why is that legitimate? And so that went away. Nobody nobody cares about that anymore, right? They, and, and what I used to tell people back then is you could pay for it. If somebody got really difficult, I'd literally say that in a nice tone of voice. i would say, you could pay for my office. They'd, and for a second they'd be like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, who else is going to pay for it? Right. You're going to pay for it. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm going to bill it to you. Not directly, but indirectly I am. So why don't we just, like, assume I don't need an office? And so I think that virtual selling in some ways has changed to a similar degree. They like the fact that they don't implicitly have to pay for your plane ticket. And they don't have to pay for you to come out all the time. And, they right. and the second thing is the tools. Uh, the tools have just gotten great. If you think about CRMs 10 years ago versus CRMs now, there's a plethora of really good choices, usually tied to your industry, tied to your selling motion. You can pick something that's very tailor-made for you. Uh, scheduling tools. I don't know how many times clients have said, that Calendly thing you work you use is great. That <laughs> Calendly is not the only game in town, but there's, there's other ones like it. But what they're saying when they say that, and for the listeners, if you haven't used Calendly, you basically send out a link and the link is structured by you. You say, I offer 30-minute meeting slots or hour meeting slots on certain days. And you set up the algorithm and you send out the link. And then the person you send it to picks their time to meet with you. And there's similar tools like this. And and seriously, I it must be five times a week somebody in an enterprise or mid-market goes, and I don't know how they haven't seen these tools yet, right? Because sellers are using them more. But they're like, that was great. That was so easy to set up a meeting. And what they're really saying is, I think, even if they don't articulate it, is many moons ago when people met me, we sat with our Franklin Covey day planners and we looked at each other and we figured out the next meeting time. And that was efficient. And I really like that. Now, of course, I'm not thinking this out loud. Like nobody said Franklin Covey day planner. Right. I was the first person to say that on a podcast in the last seven years. But, but the point is, they know it's hard to do it virtually. It's email back and forth. And then by the time you get back to them, their meeting slots taken and then yours taken and, you know, and eventually they get frustrated with you. they don't really say they're frustrated with you, but they're like, I'm going to work with the seller that's easier to schedule with. And what they really mean by that is just his schedule lined up better with mine. It wasn't necessarily easier. And Calendly takes that all away, and it becomes kind of a very asynchronous interaction. And from their standpoint, they cherry-pick what they want. Um, The same thing's true with things like Uber Conference. Um, I love that tool because it's pinless. It's the same goofy thing. Uh, Just yesterday, I had two people from Intel. uh, And they get on the call, and they're like, this is really neat. It doesn't have a pin this is awesome. You know, and I'm like, okay, I mean, I know your IT guys convince you you're having a secure conversation every time and you really need like a 17, you know, hexadecimal pin to make this thing work, but you don't, (laughs) you know, you really, really don't. You could just have a phone number and it would be fine. And, um, and, and so my point is a lot of this stuff is just made it very, very smooth to have the call, get on the call, take the notes, schedule all the rest of that stuff. Right. And I think, and I could go on with that. There's there's other tools that I think are really important. But at the end of the day, if you build up that little toolbox, you actually are much easier to deal with than you were back in the day with your day planner sitting in their office. And you can operate at a scale that you never could before.
1: Yeah, without a doubt, I, I I'm with you. I think that calendar link and you know, when I'm working with clients and teaching class and stuff is one of the things I point out. I think it is probably one of the most uh, impactful technologies that sales professionals have had at their or have at their fingertips. It just makes things seamless. And it and I'm, I'm to your point. I don't understand why more people haven't heard of it. It's not like it's not like it's particularly new. I mean, I, I guess maybe adoption of it's ramping up but i mean there are people out there that should be very aware of that and it just it saves my time too it saves the time for the customer makes it seamless um and i so i'm gonna echo what sean said if you guys haven't looked at calendly or schedule once or the HubSpot's got one in it like you guys need to find need to find one of those really quick and start using it what other um besides crm and, and uber conference and stuff like that give me a couple other tools that you're really fond of in the virtual selling environment
0: Uh, Well, one is Attach.io, and that is in a class of tools that's similar. Again, it's like Calendly. Like if you sent Attach.io competitors into Google, you'd probably end up at G2 Crowd or one of those sites, and it would show you 10 other options. So I just particularly have liked Attach.io. And we use that for sending out research briefs, um, which is what we call our initial proposal that goes out to the client. And you load it up in the tool, and it can show you metrics of when they accessed it, uh, which pages of the proposal they looked at. Uh, and how many different people have looked at it. And, you know, there's tools like this, but, but if you really invest in them, a good story that uh, happened this past year, because we've been using them for a few years now, is end of the year, you know, clients reset their budgets, they get prepared for next year. talking about larger accounts typically, right, that might run on a calendar, and they've got a lot of kind of strategic planning processes. And that impacts, you know, research, because a lot of times they want research in advance of so those meetings or after them. And so we'll tend to get a lot of activity that starts to brew up late in the year and early in the year. And so, you know, I've got, I don't know, hundreds of proposals in Attach.io now over the years. And it's really funny. It's, I love to fish and everybody's, anybody who's been fishing, you know, if you put a bunch of lines out, you know, you've gone over a school of fish because all the lines start to vibrate. Right. <laughs> and you have these magical moments. Sometimes where like all the lines hit and everybody in the boat's got a fish on, you know, that doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes it does. And that's where I'm going with this is with Attach.io because those links aren't attachments to emails that the best you could do is tell, like, if somebody opened the email again, now they kind of come live like fishing line. And so, uh, last year in December, all of a sudden, like December 2nd, a bunch of the lines started to, to twinge. And these were proposals I sent a few months before that they said they needed to wait on budget or whatever. And it was this incredible dashboard of analytics, right? Where I was able to kind of resurface this stuff based on that, that twingle, on the line again. Right. And if I'd sent it as an attachment, I would have never known. Right. And, and if I tried to wait to have the in-person meeting, I couldn't have that many in-person meetings. So so anyway, so attach IO is one. And then um, I would also say something like zoom, you know, for video conferencing, make that idiot proof. Uh, Too many of the video conferencing tools that were in the first generation were frankly horrible (laughs) in terms of how good they were. Yep. Uh, and so you need something where the client can just kind of jump in really quick. We use video for almost everything now. Uh, client calls, status calls, sales calls, and it's it's fantastic. And, um, and you know, on the next breed of tools, these are beyond what we would personally need. But I keep track of these because we work sometimes with marketing or sales teams and uh, for their research needs, of course. And I kind of want to know what tool set they're using. There's tools like one I came across the other day. It was like a chorus.ai, I think it was called. And there's these tools now that will just plug in to your inside sales team and record every call they're having, let you run analytics on it. It'll do automatic transcription of every interaction. And there's obviously been monitoring tools for this kind of stuff before, but the cost of where this is going, you could have like a five person inside sales team in some startup and you could plug one of these things in and get fantastic analytics on everything that's happening
1: oh without a doubt there's and, another and one I, like that called gong.io that does it does oh yeah a yeah i've seen that one too and then there's a new yeah, one, yeah. uh balto software actually designed to give to do all of that but then also give you a visual cue of uh word choice speed uh if you're making too many statements versus questions that one's in uh in beta right now but those things are amazing to me
0: Exactly. And I think the next wave of tools, for sales automation, we're kind of at the space marketing automation was maybe three years ago, I think. Where, you know, marketing automation, as a phrase, really meant your CRM plus your newsletter tool plus a few social tools three, four, five years ago. Right. That's what it meant. And then it's not that anymore. We all know that. There's like 4,000 tools or 5,000. There's that guy that puts out the marketing automation landscape poster every year, that big infographic, right? And there's like 5,000 of those things on there. So now you're in a state in marketing automation where you have like incredible analytics and incredible kind of ability to monitor content. And and sales, we haven't even seen how far this is going to go. Although that does lead to another point, which is that I I think on virtual selling, the marketing your company does has it has an outsized influence on your success too, uh, in a way that it didn't when you were doing a lot of in person selling? And we could get to that at some point too.
1: Excellent. And so, if you if you could, you know, we've talked tools, we've talked kind of what the definition is, why buyers are are, are more receptive to it today. But if you could give the audience three tips that you think would make them more effective at, at virtual selling, what would they be?
0: Um, I would think. You know, probably the, it's tough, right? It's tough to boil that down, right, after that <laughs> many years. But if, I, but if I was to say, for, for virtual selling in particular, and, and to some degree selling in general, ask great questions. You know, ask really, really good questions is, is fundamentally going to set you apart from almost anybody. So many people pitch. So many people have statements. So many people have an ability to kind of orate really well you know uh they they, they, their sales process is like shakespearean in terms of their ability to communicate but in the entire 40 minutes they never ask a good question (laughs) and i and i think and i think if if you open with good questions the client oh and notice i didn't say good answers right there's two distinctions there like like yes have good answers know your client space know your industry but but initially sometimes frank frankly if it's a brand new company to you, there's only so much you can spin up on. And for and you also have to watch out for hubris. You don't really know them that well at that point, no matter how much you've studied. And so a good question, though, can go a long way. The second thing is I've said for years I've, I've sold more by saying no than saying yes. And I don't mean an obnoxious no. <laughs> I don't mean a superior no. I don't mean like, no, like the F&I guy does when you're trying to negotiate your car deal, right? I don't mean like that. What I mean is, no, I wouldn't do that. I would suggest this. No, I don't really understand why you're trying to do these two things at the same time. They don't quite seem to line up, right? Or no, we don't do that to that point earlier, right? In my own sales process, I don't know how many times in the middle of a call, I've said, we don't do that and they, they're drawn in. Now I don't mean it's it's Machiavellian. I don't mean like I'm yeah, we really do it do do it, but I just tell you we don't. Right? <laughs> That's not what I mean. It's like we don't do it. And they go, "Well gosh, you must know who you are. You must and and this is true even if you're doing selling for somebody else." Right? Like like you really know what your company doesn't do. And and I and I guarantee there's some sales managers out there that are just screaming right now. Because they're like, never, 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 right? And this happened even with my own seller doers in my company when I'm training them. It happened the other day. We were having this call with Intel, and I said, uh, we don't do this, and we don't do this, and we don't do this. And uh, the seller doer said, I-, I never do that. And I'm like, you need to start doing that. I keep telling you, you got to do that. And he's like, "And he's like, I know what happened. They, they-, they trusted you, right? Because they have to trust you if they're going to buy from you. You might as well tell them what you don't do. Yeah, you know. And so there's that. And the last one would be, um, I think, you know, for this virtual selling, really focus on the audio. And this is virtual selling in specific. I I don't know how many times I've watched somebody try to do virtual selling through a credit conference phone. I mean, you know, uh, Polycom has never made a good conference phone, in my opinion, just just frankly, because nobody likes talking to anybody through them. And so really focus on how your audio sounds. Like imagine you're a podcaster would be a really good analogy. Like the kind of quality you want that podcast to sound like. So when you crank it up to nine in your car, it sounds really buttery and it sounds really robust. Think about your calls that way because I guarantee what will happen is people will just stay on longer. They'll enjoy talking to you they'll feel like this is a good experience and and it's such a subtle thing but it's huge i mean i have no idea how much money i've spent on good quality headsets over the years but i haven't regretted a dollar of it right, because right. clients are always like that sounds really good you know and they're meanwhile talking to me on some cruddy polycom so i have <laughs> but 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 at least i sound good to them right. so, sorry polycom you guys have done good work somewhere i'm not sure where but somewhere <laughs>
1: anyway. just not for us All right, so let's pivot here a little bit and talk about Cascade Insights. So we talked about the importance of marketing. You mentioned the importance of marketing when you're doing virtual selling. Um, Can you help the audience understand how you structure those efforts inside of Cascade in order to drive net new business?
0: Yeah, so so we have like a lot of consulting firms. We have, you know, some uh, usually a principal of the firm, me in this case, leading sales. And then if you're doing it right, you also have, seller-doers, right? You take some of your people who are doing and you train them to be seller-doers. And at the moment, two of our folks who are analysts have been kind of for about a year now kind of being led through kind of on-the-job training on how to do it. And uh, I actually just told them the other day they kind of graduated, um, in, at least at stage one uh, and from that standpoint. And and there, that'll take a while to get done right uh, because you're taking a doer and trying to convert them selling. On the marketing side, I've got two marketing people that report to me full-time, and that's a real difference, I think, for a firm of our size. You know, we've got about a dozen employees and got two full-time marketers, but it's been huge because we've heard time and time again from clients that we hit above our weight marketing wise. They love our site. They love the clarity of it. They love the content we produce, that it's on message, that it's the kind of things they want to hear. And we're extremely focused on all aspects of good marketing. You know, whether it's uh, Appropriate use of ad buys for B2B for our kind of audience, whether it's SEO, the kind of content we produce, our content calendar. Um, we spend a lot of time thinking, is the, is the website a perfect example of what we'd want a pitch deck to look like for us? Uh, which is a funny thing. I still have clients to this day that will be like, send me your pitch deck. I'm like, you know, that's the website, right? It's like, <laughs> why why would I have anything other than the website? And they always laugh when I say that because they're like, yeah, that's kind of silly. Why would I want a PPT for you, right? Which link should I go look at? And and, so, and a good example of where that can be helpful in virtual selling is I, we were, we've been working with Citrix for a while, uh, but they wanted to upsize this one project of ours. And they knew that one of these VPs was going to have to sign off on it. And they, they literally told me this. They said, hey, we took your proposal into the VP, you know, this upsized version of the project that we wanted to move to, and the VP had never met you but we had him look at your website and after about five minutes he said, these are the guys I want to hire. Now I don't normally get that kind of clarity because as if anybody's read stuff like the CEB reports and stuff on B2B uh, sales process, you know, there's somewhere between five to six people involved in every deal. Uh, virtually you won't maybe meet all of them. You might not have ever met all of them, even if it was in person for that matter, but that website and really good marketing, becomes this amazing afterburner on your virtual selling efforts right right because all those other people then they kind of sell themselves and grow towards you you still need to sell but uh, I I think it's just massive and then you also talk about the buyers journey changes which a lot of people know about you know that depending on your industry 50 to ninety percent of the sales cycle is is done before that you even heard from them you just have to get really savvy with marketing. And and I think it's also something as a final thought on it, it can scale up or down as needed, right? Um, So I'm not saying you start off with all of it. Like if you're more of a solopreneur, I was talking to a guy who's a one person business and he looked at what we were doing. He's like, I can't do all that. I'm like, you don't start with all of that. You don't have to start with a podcast called B2B Revealed. You don't have to start with a big website. You don't have to start with Three or four articles a month and studies. You just start with a clean site that is the best example of the same pitch you would have given in person, and you nail it. Right. And, and and from that foundation, you build the rest of it.
1: Yeah, the marketing portion of it is becoming ever, ever more critical uh, these days. I agree 100%. But when you guys are starting to plan for 2018, right, you're leading the team into 2018, what's the strategic business objective uh, as you guys head into head into the new year?
0: Um, I want to keep growing the list of clients we have. You know, we're, we're in a space where,
1: um,
0: and this little funny side marketing story related to that, is my web team, who I love right? Just love this group that we've worked with for years. Um, it's called the Kirsner group. Uh, it's led by a woman named Erin Kirsner and she does a great job. But one of the things her team does is on our, what we do page, we have all our client logos and every time she sends me a version of the page for a new edit when we work on it, she drops it down to four logos because she hates the fact that that client logo block is so big. (laughs) And I, I say, every time I talk to a client though and I walk them through the site there, they do a full stop on the client logo block. Uh, because we're we're focused on one industry. So from my standpoint, I want to keep growing there in the number of clients. Um, if we're talking about sales objectives on a marketing objective standpoint, it, there's always things to learn there. Um, one of the biggest things I think we're focused on in marketing is the transition from organic to paid, because even if you're doing awesome stuff, and, and you may know this from running a show, right? The difference between three to four years ago and your ability to get organic traction with content versus now, it's night and day. I mean, they're, they're, you know for anybody doing it at scale, there's got to be some kind of paid component to it. And um, that's kind of on my mind this year in terms of things I'd like to get a lot smarter about. I mean, we're doing some of it now, but it's uh, it's something I'd like to do a lot more of. And we've had some really, really good success there because there's some really cool things you can do with paid uh, retargeting campaigns and all kinds of stuff if you do it right. So that, that's 2018.
1: It, and is there? It, it, I ask this again. I'm kind of a little off track now, but you've piqued my interest because you're right. I run, I run this podcast. So, uh, are there things that you have seen from the paid that are more effective than others or places? Especially, you know, I mean, you guys are specifically targeting B two B tech companies. But have you seen things that are? Uh, more effective. You mentioned retargeting. We talked to Tim Matthews, who's the VP of marketing for a company called Imperva. And he was talking about pre-targeting the techs, almost getting to the point where you can almost get ahead of, of people. I'm just kind of curious, what have you seen in the paid side that's, that's really impressed you or or worked or made you believe that that shift has been uh, beneficial?
0: Yeah, well um, it's been beneficial just because I've noticed the impact on our content numbers just when I do it. You know, we did a. Um, here's a good example. We did a, a what I thought was a really good interview with a guy uh, Ryan Single uh, on uh, net neutrality, and it's the latest episode on the show uh, B2B Revealed. And I, you know, we have our normal ways of promoting it, just like everybody does. I spent a hundred dollars on a Twitter ad. That one post I put out got 300 likes for a hundred bucks. I, you know, I like to say all of our posts get 300 likes, they don't. <laughs> so uh, at the end of the day right some of that targeting works really well and the retargeting stuff a good example there for a podcast one uh for example and i got this tip from somebody else that was in the podcast mastermind group in facebook i wish i could remember the guy's name but i'd attribute it to him but i just don't but he had a walkthrough video of putting facebook retargeting on your site and so you just target visitors to your site with podcast ads on facebook and it's been really successful for a B2B podcast, because you know if you think about it, people in business, when they're on Facebook, that's probably a little more of their free time. They're much more likely, perhaps, to kind of grab a podcast than if they're at two o'clock in the middle of a conference room meeting with somebody else, right? Because what do most people do a podcast? They listen to the first episode or two, right? right? Or check it out. And so you hit them at a time where they're more likely to do that. They're on the couch, scrolling through pictures of friends, and all of a sudden this ad comes up, and they're like, yeah, okay, it's a business podcast, but I, yeah, I might like that, right? Uh, So the retargeting stuff's really big. Um, LinkedIn ads, I interviewed a guy on LinkedIn ads. um, He'll go live in a couple months. And, you know, he he gave credence to what I noticed. It's a very expensive way to fly on LinkedIn ads. And I think that'll change. But right now, while we dabble in LinkedIn, we've been a lot more effective on Facebook content that's more culture, brand-focused, or podcast-focused. Because it's a little lighter, uh, in a way, you know, it's not like you know related directly to the research we do 100%. Right. And then for Google AdWords, we've been spending a lot on more like really targeted stuff to the research we do, um, and so that's that's where we've gotten a lot of uplift. And I use Twitter occasionally, uh, but but here's the thing: everybody that I've interviewed on my show, at least about marketing, I've I've kind of for my own edification, a bit like you've mentioned a few times here in this this interview, I ask them like, so what about organic and paid? And everybody I've talked to this year, every marketing leader, PR leader, whatever, is like, yeah, you, you gotta go spend. It's just the way the game's played now. That's how these guys are optimizing the platform. So I I, I think the idea of awesome content brings lots of eyeballs is, is less true than before, and you just gotta get real about it.
1: Right, right, excellent. All right, so let's change direction a little bit here. We ask all of our guests kind of two standard questions towards the end of each interview. The first is simply, as a CEO, as a revenue executive, uh, in sales parlance, that makes you a target or a prospect. Um, I would love for you to help our audience understand when someone you don't know is trying to get in front of you, who believes they have a solution or something that that will help solve a problem for you, what's the best way to capture your attention and build credibility? Well, I wouldn't do what this guy did the other
0: day. It was so bad that I actually like started actually laying it out word for word in slack, which is what we use for internal communication. <laughs> so my fellow doers could see how bad it was. And, and, and I, it's short by the way, but, but it was like, he got on and said something, doesn't really matter. It was his basic introductory statement about the company. And I always say, what's this regarding? Cause those first statements sometimes are so vague, like you don't really know. So I say, what's this regarding? And he literally said, that's great. <laughs> and then he said something and I said, what's this regarding? And he said again, that's great. <laughs> I have to admit I lost it. I, I finally kind of broke out and I said I said, Do you know what I just said? And he and he almost started to say that's great again. And you could just picture him looking at this script <laughs> going, I'm supposed to say but that just seems wrong on like every level to say that back to this man. And so I finally got him to recognize we weren't even remotely a target for his solution. I mean it didn't matter what value prop he had, we weren't even remotely in his universe. Right, which was fine, and he got it. And so what I would say works for me is be direct. Open the call, ask me if it's a good time, and mean it. There's a woman, uh, Sharon Drew Morgan, who's wrote up some really good stuff over the years. She's not as active in writing as she was once was. Uh, and she used to mention that in her book, Sales on the Line. It was a book for telemarketers back in the 90s. But it's, it's still actually an interesting read uh, from a historical standpoint. But in the beginning, she said, just ask if it's a good time. Like, be direct. You know, don't do this like fuzzy weirdness at the start where I have to kind of guess what you're talking about. I mean, that's not going to help you. And then um, don't badger, educate. Educate me, right? And like I said, it's just ask a good question, even. That'll full stop me. And I'll be like, so what was that? <laughs> As opposed to just badgering me, right? To kind of stay on the line, right? It's like they, they run it like it's a game of how long they stay on matters. And we both know that's not the case, right? You can you can close deals in a four minute phone call. I mean, not really, but you can move it to the next stage, and and so um, that that's probably the biggest thing, right? Yeah, it, asking, is those two things? I mean, don't
1: bad. A good... Yeah,
0: yeah. Asking questions, right? Don't badger, educate me, and and be direct. If you do those two things, you probably get my attention better than anything else
1: yeah yeah we we call it when we teach it to students when we teach it to clients we call it a pattern interrupt just ask them be direct and ask have I caught you at a bad time because most people don't take the time to do that so it, it literally catch it makes them kind of stutter step well and well and, and on that
0: uh, yeah and on that point really quick just uh, uh, sorry about the interruption, but uh sharon drew morgan ties it back to nlp which i don't really believe a lot of the nlp stuff but But there's a point of it exactly the same thing. It's this kind of targeted interruption that kind of unlocks their brain, and they don't go to the rote kind of process they have for dealing with you. And to your point, you can use that in a lot of places. You don't have to just use it at the start of the call. It's a really good technique.
1: Right. Excellent. All right. So last question, we call it our acceleration insight. If there's one thing you could tell sales or marketing professionals, one piece of advice that if you gave them today and they actually paid attention to it and internalized it, uh, that you believe would help them hit their targets or be better tomorrow, what would it be and why? Be brave enough to say no.
0: Seriously, just, just say no a little more. No, it isn't a good time to talk because I'm not going to be like really spun up on you by that point in time. You know, No, I don't want to stuff that in this proposal because it's not in your best interest. You know, no, we don't have to scale to that budget number because a smaller project would actually suffice to meet your needs. If they trust you to say no, you're going to be way better off for the long run, especially if you're selling large accounts where you're going to have a relationship for many years. That's a much better place to start. So just say no more often.
1: Yeah, there's no more powerful word. There, it is the most powerful word in sales, uh, and I've told that to my teams for years. It creates authenticity, helps build trust, but you don't see a lot of sales reps do it because they all get so flustered about, oh, I got to hit the quota, I just, and they're not thinking about the customer; they're thinking about their number rather than what's best exactly. in the long run for the business. Excellent. Well, Sean, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. If the, if a listener wants to talk to you more about the things that we've talked about today, what's the best way to get in contact?
0: Uh, they can just email me. Uh, my email is Sean, S E A N at dot com, And that's on the site too. If you go take a look at the contact us page and, uh, obviously if they want to check out B2B revealed as another podcast, they could, they could listen to that for a while too.
1: Excellent. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, family, and coworkers. And if you like what you hear, do us a favor, write us a review on iTunes. We do pay attention to that. Until next time, we at Value Prime Solutions wish you all nothing but the greatest success.
0: You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience.